The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague, official agitator, heavy emphasis on agitator, friend, and Yoda, of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. I am the captain of the Rebel Alliance. Just remember that. Okay. <laughs> so today's guest, I'm not, you know, I didn't even actually do um, a background check because I know I've known this guy. I don't even know when we first met, but he's just released a new book. And he hangs around with some of the who's who, like guys like Dr. Joe Steebrook. I think he called you a troublemaker, if I remember correctly. And uh, he has a blog. He calls the Energy Vanguard blog. And they do engineering consulting services. And he's a highly acclaimed teacher. And, you know, I'm not going to tell his whole story because he can. But we're here to talk about Mr. Dr. Allison Bales III. And Allison, it's so great to have you on the show. Adam and I, of course, have wanted you on for a long time, but uh, you, now you have a book out. So you're doing the book tour, you're like doing podcasts, and you're going to all the conferences. And I got to tell you, when I got the copy of the book and and just started to read it, a, I want to thank you for uh, referencing some of my own philosophies, and I really appreciate that. And of course, that's something that I've you know will go to my grave believing that we should design for people and uh, buildings will follow. And you've Captured that in this book, in the book. I don't know if I can get this on the screen. Is that possible? Can you put it in front of your body? There we go. Right. So, house needs to breathe. Allison, you got a great story. Tell us about it. How'd you get to this place in your life? Well, before I go there, though, I'll go back to what you said. You don't remember how how we met. I'll tell you how we met. I wrote an article called "Naked People Need Building Science" about mean radiant temperature, <laughs> and you called me up. I think it was 2011. So we've known each other over a decade uh, since that fo- first phone call. How could you forget a title like that? <laughs> <laughs> that made it into the book. Yeah. Um, Martin Holiday was not a fan of it, apparently. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Lloyd Alter loves it. Yeah, Lloyd did. Lloyd ran with it. Me. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> ran with it. So, anyway, uh, origin story, uh, my Spider Man story. I was not bitten by a radioactive spider, but I was in uh, physics graduate school, got a PhD in physics, and my thesis advisor built a house. She designed the whole thing herself. She and her husband bought a sawmill, and they cut the lumber, and and I got to watch while I was doing my graduate work while she built that house, and I would go out and visit sometimes, and um, it was really cool, and I wanted to do that, and so... A few years later, I was out of grad school. I had a job. I had a tenure track job in Georgia teaching physics. And I bought some land and built a house. And that was um, number one. It was therapy because I hated the job. Not, from, <laughs> not the teaching part. The teaching was wonderful, but my colleagues were absolutely nuts. And I'm glad to be out of there. So it was therapy. And it was a launching pad for my new career. I spent uh, two years using the power of self-delusion 
because for two years, I was always just two months out. I'm going to be in that house in two months. <laughs> and uh, finally did get into it. Lived in it for three years and then got divorced. But it was the most comfortable house I'd ever lived in. Mean radiant temperature was great, although I didn't measure it. But, I, you know, the air tightness and the good solid insulation with the structural insulated panels made a huge difference inside. I could keep it at a lower temperature, air temperature, and it was very comfortable. So um, that's sort of my origin story. That And launching from there, I started a business in the early 2000s doing home energy ratings, load calculations, and then got into home performance contracting. And then when the divorce happened, my mom was dying. My personal life got a little chaotic. That business kind of fell apart. I went to work for another contractor, and then I went to work for the South Face Energy Institute in Atlanta, nonprofit, doing great work. And, um, and then in 2008, I left there and started my current company, Energy Vanguard. We do residential HVAC design. I have this blog they've been writing since 2010. Yeah, that's it. I like that. There's a couple of big messages in there. One, uh, thanks for sharing your your personal life. And you are actually fairly open with your your past and your life. And I think that really adds a nice human factor um, to your story because not everybody is willing to share what goes on in the background. So thanks for sharing that. But one of the more important parts of that is that out of all of the stuff that people go through and everybody has a story, you've built a career and you've built a business and you've managed to just, uh, it's perseverance and, you know, just keep going. And and that that has always impressed the hell out of me with all of our guests, right, Adam? I mean, we've had people that, that have had amazing lives, not always for the best, but regardless of what sort of goes around in the background, they still end up contributing and making a difference. Life is a zigzag, right? It's also oh. vaguely up and to the right. That's all you can hope for. Yeah, <laughs> up to the right. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it turns out I'm, I'm, I think I'm not a very good employee for other people. So that's, <laughs> that's a big reason I'm in business for myself. We've talked about that too. I remember <laughs> the best thing my dad ever did for me, and he said it with the most kindest words ever, and that was, Robert, you're basically unemployable. Yeah. <laughs> Get used to it. You're an entrepreneur. You just don't know it yet. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You had a head start. I, I didn't get that kind of guidance growing up. I had to figure it out myself. It took a long yeah. time. So just before we get on to your book, you mentioned like you started off in teaching and then you sort of um, went into um, sort of like the more practical side of life and uh, the contracting side and the design side. So where do you fall on them two spectrums? What's your preference right now, teaching or or doing, for want of a better word? <laughs> um, my preference right now is on the doing side. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, on the teaching side. Right. Yeah. Uh, at age 61, almost 62 now, my body is talking to me. Um, I, I think back 20 years ago, all the time I spent in attics and crawl space. And I heard a, a great term the other day. Uh, I was at the... HVACR symposium in Florida last or week and a half ago. One of the speakers there talked about rafter knees. <laughs> and everybody who spent time in that knows exactly what he meant by that. I, I definitely have had rafter knees. And uh, so, yeah, that's harder to do now. And I uh, have a company. We have uh, four employees, counting me, three. Right. Um, and I'm enjoying this part of, of the business and sharing what I've learned. and. Uh, yeah, and apparently it's resonating because the book is selling well. The blog is very popular. 
Nice. So then I'll send over your career too, like in the process of teaching and sharing. And I don't remember the year, but you had posted some photographs of a bat installation project that just failed on so many levels. Okay. Consequent <laughs> showing that photograph, you got a 11 by 14 envelope <laughs> from, from a law firm representing the manufacturer of that insul- insulation. And of course, a number of people came to your side basically telling these guys that you're missing a huge opportunity here to take that rather than turning it into let's attack Allison to let's turn this into an opportunity to teach people how to install bad insulation. Tell us about that because you know, as you know, like right now we're trying to get another guest on here who's also received a 14 by 11 envelope from another manufacturer who's completely missing the ball. We, We don't want to talk about that right now. But when manufacturers sue engineers and educators, it's just the wrong move. It just sends a bad message. And, of course, as you know, there was a number of people that got on your side, many people who were influential, and basically said, you continue with that, we'll never specify your stuff again. Tell us about that experience, because there's a lesson there. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very interesting. That was about a year into my blogging career, so 2011. And yeah, I wrote an article, I think it was called something like um, Visual Analysis of Fiberglass Bat Insulation or Failures of Fiberglass Bat, something like that. Yeah. And it was basically just a bunch of pictures of fiberglass bats installed very, very poorly. And I wrote the article quickly. I just took all the pictures from one house that I visited, which meant they were all from the same manufacturer. And a couple of years ago, I wrote an article saying, you know, what I would have done differently if I were writing that article again, I would have taken pictures from different houses, different manufacturers, and it wasn't the manufacturer at all. Right. So that was, you know, something that I could have avoided altogether, but it did get a lot of publicity for the Energy Vanguard blog. That's how I met Lloyd Alter. And um, yeah, I mean, as you said, a lot of people came to my defense and wrote letters and emails, and they they even called because I, I published the lawyer's letter. It was a very nasty letter. Very it was a nasty letter. It was it was really it, yeah, it was harsh. Yeah, it wasn't just you know we think you could do better. <laughs> you, please take those off and change the article or something. It was yeah, it was it was we're coming after you <laughs> they didn't sue me but they did all but all but that it seemed well like. i wrote their their president and i said i don't know who's in your human resources that hired the lawyer probably somebody with an mba and that it's not just caveat on that i know lots of good mbas but sometimes these young guys want to make a reputation and they'll pick an example you in this case and i said you need to fire that person that one lawyer working for that manufacturer, trying to make a name for himself, did more to destroy the goodwill of that manufacturer than anybody. Not you, not the contractors that saw it, not anybody that was associated with the project, but the lawyer did. Yeah. Shame on him. And shame on whoever hired him and shame on whoever gave him the go-ahead to send that letter. I'm going to use the edifice complex here to get on a soapbox. So <laughs> if there's manufacturers that are listening and you want to pull that kind of a stunt, We'll use our own public relations to defend those that are doing stuff like you were doing and other people that are doing it because you're drawing attention to something that needs to be talked about and it needs to be improved. And that doesn't happen without actually turning the rocks over, right? It's classic bullying, right? The greatest untapped power in the world is gross aggregate demand, right? What I mean by that is when 
not individuals, but when people en masse change their taste or mind on something, it's over. See, Blackberry. How many Blackberry? You got a Blackberry right now? No. Because en masse, everyone went, you know what? That's not good enough anymore. It's the same thing. This is the thing that manufacturers and big firms fear. Google, right? At some point, we might all decide Google's just too horrific and we're going to do something else. That's over for Google, right? So they will do everything in their power to stop that happening, including cease and desist letters. This is no different, right? You're pointing out something that's objectively true. And rather than respond with high integrity and try and fix something, they went straight for the hammer to the head. Yeah. That's a shame on them. And that's just corporate bullying through and through. Absolutely. That's power and corporate bullying. Society as a whole, I think, is done with corporate bullying. And I know in the engineering community, and I've written about this before, is that you start suing engineers and and educators, there's no effing way that they're going to ever show your product again. Anytime the opportunity comes up, they're going to badmouth you, whether you like it or not. So any of the manufacturers that are listening, (laughs) pay attention, because we will make life difficult for you. You right. go for our guy, we're coming, I'd fly among us for you. That's a freaking lootly. I mean, there is some perfect, you know, sorry, I don't want to dominate this, car, but I got, I got tricked. Going, going I actually lost my shit. I said, I just couldn't believe that that was happening. That's why I wrote their CEO and told him to fire the lawyer. But ultimately, yeah, okay, there's got to be a, some level of professionalism because that creates, you know, some level playing ground. But when it comes to things that are not done properly or not communicated properly and somebody draws attention to it, that's just a flag that says, okay, we can do better. You know, we, Let's look at this collectively as an industry mm-hmm. and let's change the way things are done so that people benefit from it. They did come around um, in the end. So after a few days of being pummeled <laughs> by all that bad publicity, I got a letter, an email from the CEO, and he apologized for the way they had behaved. So they they did come around, but, you know, without that all that publicity, they wouldn't have done that. Yeah. That's the lesson, that. right? The only way to be a bully is to stand up to them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we like doing that. <laughs> yeah. The power of social media, right? And uh, collective communication. One of the reasons we really wanted to get you on today was to talk about your book. So yes, I love the cool. title because it sort of poses a uh, here. <laughs> poses a question. A house needs to breathe or does it? So when I first saw that title, I thought, of course it does. And I went, <laughs> it did, your title did to me exactly what it was supposed to do. It made me look at it both ways. So why the book and why the title? And how, why, how did you get to that title? Let's start with that. Okay. So the title comes from my having to listen to many builders tell me that over the years. Oh, we shouldn't seal up a house too tight. A house needs to breathe. So that statement and, and that context comes from the point of view of air tightness. You know, they pushed back on on the, you know, when the codes were coming in and requiring blower door tests and that, you know, they said, oh no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do all this. Look what happened in the 70s when we we made houses tight and people people got sick and people died because of bad indoor air quality. Well, no, that's the wrong answer. And I'm not shy about putting the answer out early. You you don't have to go far in the book. I think it's page 23 where I actually say that in the book. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that there are some, some some people say a house needs to breathe and and I say, okay, because they mean it in a different way. I'm not crazy about using the word breathe for houses or buildings in either sense, but, you know, if they're talking about moisture, 
movement through the building enclosure, you know, breathable materials and, uh, you know, that. But that's not really the right word, in my opinion. I, I think we should say a house needs to dry, right? Things are going to get wet, and they need to be able to dry out when they do get wet. Moisture be, needs to be able to pass through, which is not the, exactly the same as breathing. So since it's confusing, let's just drop the word breathe from buildings and stop anthropomorphizing buildings that way. There's two other things on that. So number one, you know, one, one common retort is, Houses don't need to breathe. The people inside them need to breathe. Mm -hmm. And there's another great one from a guy named James Powers in New Zealand who said, if you find yourself inside something that's breathing, get out. You've been eaten. <laughs> hey, Jonah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love, that's like when we hear people say like radiant floor heating provides the same level of comfort as the sun. And I always say, the floors are as warm as the sun. Get the F out of your house. It's on fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> that, that, that story reminds me of one of my early mentors. He used to say to me, don't let the moisture in, but let it out anyway. Right? So he's saying, seal it up, but don't lock it in, is what he's basically saying, I guess, there. Yeah. Is that where you sort of land? Yeah, well, so the book isn't just about this idea of breathing yeah. and what it means. It's it's about, you know, the subtitle is An Introduction to Building Science. So right. I've divided the book into three main sections. The first one is start at the end, something that Robert has uh, pounded into my head over the last decade, designed for people and good buildings will follow. And I, I put Amen. that quote in the book more than once because yeah. it, it's really important. So start at the end. What is it that the people need? from the house. You know, we want comfort. We want a healthful place to live. We want um, energy efficiency. We want durability and quiet. That's where we start. And then, then I go into the, the next two sections are about the building enclosure and then the mechanical systems. And I go into detail about moisture flow and airflow and heat flow and talk about different materials and ways we characterize the, the materials and how do we construct assemblies and enclosures that will control those three flows. You know? Right. And then what kind of mechanical systems do we need? And I focus, I mean, my, you know, our practice is, is all about forced air distribution. I talk about different types of distribution, but I don't go into detail about the hydronic side. Focus on the forced air distribution on the mechanical section. But that's the dominant sort of solution in North America, right? Yeah. And even with hydronic, you still need air distribution for ventilation. So you still need outside air, right? Yeah. That's not in itself is an interesting conversation. So, sidebar, we used to hear people all the time say, well, yeah, like don't use radiant because you're going to need an air system anyway. So then you're going to be duplicating systems. But when you talk to people that specialize in air quality, they say dedicated air systems are the best. <laughs> I'm, on that, I'm on that train. And I got to tell you, and again, we, we, we understand. I mean, we don't want to talk a whole bunch of here about, you know, radiant versus air system. But I got to tell you, when I got out of school in 1983, that's all we did. I never did an air-only system, and I never did a radiant-only system. And as Allison pointed out, you still need to ventilate. And you're not going to do that without an air-based system. It's just that in my practice, when I was practicing, every time we did an air-based system, it was dedicated. And that's from the day I graduated. And again, going back to people talking about HRVs and HRVs, because I know you talk about that in the book, Allison. And I want to actually talk to you about this, but the, I tracked down the very first patent filed in the United States 
was in 1979. And it wasn't for an HRV, it was for an ERV. Oh, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and the very first HRVs or energy recovery ventilators that we used in the 80s, early 80s, 83, was in fact an ERV. It wasn't an HRV. There you go. There's a little bit of history. Anyways, you do talk. And one of the things I like about the book is a good friend of mine, John Siegenthaler. And Allison, I think you know John or know. Yeah, I know who he is. We've never met, but I definitely know who he is. Yeah. You know, he's written a couple of great books on hydronics, modern hydronics. I see your book very much along the same lines. Like it's really easy to read. It's not a PhD in thermodynamics or engineering. It's written in a way that, you know, the average person can understand it. And if you don't have, you know, sort of a technical background, it doesn't leave you ignorant still. Like you still can get a ton of information out of this. And yet it's got enough great information that even the seasoned practitioner, engineer, builder, HVAC contractor can get a lot of good information. So well done on that. Thank you. Yeah, so it's, it's like an A memoir. So given like your work history and you've finished this book and all the research and thinking that went into that, what would you say, like, if I like go into your head now, here's a plot of land, build me what you think is the shit, the best thing ever, go. What would that be conceptually? Uh, what climate? Let's just say uh, EST, sort of like Toronto zone, Toronto, New York. Okay, so cold climate, probably double stud walls. I, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to either double stud walls or exterior insulation. Well, right. one of the two. I'd want continuous insulation in some way. So it'd be one of those two. And depends on my budget as well. If I were doing you know a lower budget Robert's version. Robert's paying. You've got loads of money. Go. Loads of money. Okay, then then <laughs> yeah. I would I would put insulation on top of the roof deck, and yeah. you know if I had an attic, it would be a conditioned attic then. Yeah. So basically, you know, perfect wall, perfect roof, insulation on the outside, control layers. What sort of levels uh, are you insulating that to? For New York, Toronto, I like Building Science Corporations. Uh, was it um, five, 60, 10, 20, 40? or was right. it oh, five, five slab, ten for the foundation walls, twenty yeah. for the Above grade walls. No, it can't be four. No, no, no. no I'm, I'm, I must, I'm, I'm low. It's yeah, 60, 60 on the roof, I think. Yeah, yeah 60 on the roof. on the walls. Yeah, 20 below grade and then 10 or five under the slab. Okay. And it's a good rule. It's a good rule to use, you know, for that climate zone, for sure. And you yeah. can't go wrong, right? There's lots of a wiggle room. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. So that's the insulation. What about services like heat and cooling, ventilation? How would you handle that? I would go with the inverter-driven heat pumps. You know, air distribution is what I'm used to, so I'd put in air distribution system. I'm, I live in a 61-year-old house, and right. when we moved in, we changed out the HVAC systems. We we ripped out the furnace and air conditioner. I put in an inverter-driven heat pump Mitsubishi system with two air handlers in the attic, in the conditioned attic, and designed all the ductwork, and it's very quiet. It's very efficient. And keeps the house comfortable. Even a 1961 house with two by four walls with R11 at best, maybe R7 in the walls. Ooh. Single pane windows with storm windows. Ooh. Ouch, ouch, yeah. And ouch. Yeah. Well, we're in Georgia, not Canada. So. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So you've not got the half. <laughs> That's a good segue. I was, I was on your blog today because I am king of the nerds. And there was a great piece you wrote. I'm not sure how old it was about how your heat pump system was really undersized. It was sized for 65% of the load and it still sort of 
cut the mustard. Talk about that. Yeah, that's a recent article because over Christmas, we had some really low temperatures. We get down to minus 14 at the low. Right. Minus 14 Celsius. It's a balmy day up here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's balmy anywhere. <laughs> minus 14, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was our once a decade single digit Fahrenheit temperature weather. Right. And, and yeah, as you said, the, the heat pump, according to the, the numbers from the manufacturer and from my load calculation, it's, uh, the heat pump is sized for about 65% of the load. And um, even with that, though, the lowest temperature we got on the coldest day was 63 degrees, and it got up to 65 or 67 later that day. So, yeah, house uncomfortable? Did your wife find it uncomfortable? I mean, obviously, no. you, you're sensitive to it, right? But we were all fine. I, you know, I had a couple of space heaters ready to go, but I didn't use them except when I took a shower. I think I used them yeah. a couple times. So yeah, uh, that's worked really well. And also, last summer we had some some well above our design temperature hot weather. And it's not as undersized on the cooling as it is on the heating. I think it's like yeah. 12% undersized there. And we kept close to the, the set point. So I saw that graph as well. That was a very, yeah. very nice graph. Actually. Yeah. Very stable. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because in sort of a temperate climate like the UK, there's a massive push to heat pumps, but obviously there's a, a distrust because it's an unknown thing, right? It's a new thing. But um, I'm a big fan of undersizing things, says the guy who's never been sued before. Touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this, when you oversize things, the efficiency just goes out the window. You don't get sued, to be fair, right? Yeah. But so the efficiency your heat pump must be working, it must be in a pretty good zone there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have not measured that because I haven't measured the temperatures and airflow to, to be able to see how much heat I'm moving. But yeah, I mean, that's... Um, Pretty efficient. The house is not as efficient as I'm going to make it because we have the whole basement to do. The basement's basically uninsulated right now, and yeah, and where most of our air leakage is coming from. Well, a lot of it anyway. Some of it's come, a lot of it's come from the above grade walls too. <laughs> but the, yeah, it'll get more efficient as I make the house more efficient. Another thing about uh, undersizing: a lot of people want to oversize, even with modulating equipment, which is crazy because. So many pieces of equipment out there, modulating pieces of equipment are oversized so that they're always running at the bottom end. You've got no benefit from the modulating equipment when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. Someone told me something like 80% of equipment you sort of come into in a building is operating outside of its efficiency envelope. Now I'm older, I'm actually on board with that. I think empirically I've, I've seen that just about yeah. everywhere I've gone. Not the point, right? The point is right sizing or underside. The other thing I liked in your blog and I'll get off this then after that, is the fact that you mentioned that, all right, I've undersized this is 65%, but I'm going to increase the uh, the efficiency of my envelope and the integrity of my envelope to meet that level of sizing, right? Because as you improve the quality of the envelope, that sizing factor becomes less of an issue, which is a really important point, right? You can yep. improve the leakage rate through your envelope, right? Now, it's knowing what to do and having someone to do it is the problem, I guess, right? It's all right for three nerds here having a conversation. but Absolutely. Well, well I'll give you an example. So, Allison, I don't know if you know, but we have, we just finished. Well, we're 95% complete here. But it was a farmhouse that was built in the 70s. And it was brought out here onto this property. And we, you know, had our, uh, a friend of mine, 
well, we've had Amelia on and uh, Emily, and uh, she does the uh, arrow seal, arrow barrier. And so when our pre-seal test, this thing had, I think it was 15 ACH50. Like it was, there was, I mean, you could blow from one side of the house and then you could feel it come through the house on the other side, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And after nine hours, after all the things that we've done, and keep in mind, this is without the new windows in, this is without the flooring down, no baseboard, without the puck lights in, but everything else gasketed and sealed to the best that we could. We took it down from 15 down to 3.6. That's, That's great. Phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Phenomenal reduction yeah. In, in infiltration. And we'll have to do a post. So then we had the air. So that was during the And so that was, like I said, nine, nine hours we ran that spray into the building to seal up as much as we can. That was an awesome experience. And then now we've, since that time, the puck lights are in, all the new windows are in, all the flooring's down, the baseboards are in and cocked. Our goal was if we could get it down to 2.2, something like that, I would be ecstatic. So we'll do a post-test and we'll talk about it the next time we have a meeting about building science. But the sealing techniques that are available to seal up older houses, like it's not, it's not low cost, but the benefits are huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you say you used aero barrier? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a great system. You can you can dial in whatever number you want. With existing homes, you have to be there's a lot of prep work that goes there's into it. Either either yeah. get everything out of the house, which you know, if you're doing a full remodel and, and and or between occupants, you know, when one person moves out, another person moves in, you can do it a lot easier. But you have to cover things up because once you turn the thing off, that stuff settles out and it gets all over everything. Yeah. So, Emily, they came up with a great solution for that. And they, and what we did is we ended up hiring somebody who did uh, asbestos removal. And those guys specialize in covering things up. And they did just a kick-ass job. And we had maybe an hour of cleanup after it was all said and done. That okay. was it. Yeah. Would you share the cost on that or cost per square foot? I mean, how expensive was it? Well, I have to be careful here because Emily's a friend of mine and and, yeah. and this was a pilot project for me and, and doing really old homes. Uh, so prefer not to talk about the price because... Is this something a normal person could do though? I mean, not a big baller like you. <laughs> no, anybody can do it. I mean, you're any homeowner that wants to do an improvement on yeah. the house. But as Allison knows that, you know, there's a sequence of things that need to get done first. Yeah. Before you're ready, because there's no point bringing in a technology like that unless you're you just have to get the home ready for it. So we spent a lot of time detailing the penetrations that went into the attic. We spent a lot of time on all of the plating because we were had access to the bottom plates. We had access to the exterior because we did a lot of caulking the ceiling from the outside in. So there's just a, you know, for this place, all in all, so we're probably close to, I don't know, maybe 3,600 square feet of developed floor area, maybe 4,000. And we did probably two and a half days, three days of prep work. All right. So something, if you were considering a retrofit of your house, like a, re, a big re-up of it, and you were saying that, that's the time to think about doing this sort of thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you get, I would say, one of the biggest bangs for your buck is, is to be able to reduce the leakage in your house. It has so many benefits, and as Allison, as you know, in terms of controlling the flow of moisture, temperature, noise, particles, whatever, you get a big bang. 
Back to your book, Alison, what about in terms of controls technology? Because controls technology is getting more sophisticated and cheaper. We've got internet integration with that now. Is there any insights there from in your book about how that plays in? No, I didn't really talk much about that. I'm not completely with Lloyd on this, but I'm kind of with Lloyd, who wrote an article in praise of the dumb house. I'm a big believer of passive dumb shit. Excuse me. <laughs> dumb things. <laughs> I'm a big fan of myself, as you can tell, yeah. other things. But, you know, I again, carry on. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I didn't talk a lot about, you know, fancy controls and things uh. because, and, and smart houses. You know, there, we have some very good equipment, but I organized the book the way I did because that's how I see it. You know, yeah. what is it that people need most of all? And then let's start with the building enclosure because you got to do that first. And yeah. Like in my case, if, if you can't do all the building enclosure first and you got to get new equipment, at least size the equipment smaller so that it will it will be ready when you do make the enclosure improvements. Yeah. And just focus on the the basics. Um, you know, don't make it harder than it has to be. Keep it simple. I'm a big fan of that. I think Peter Simmons said that on one of our podcasts. Where he's talking about, you know, the mistake a lot of people make with sustainability and green buildings is they stick too much controls, too many sensing points, and it's not that complicated, right? You know, this is why I'm a big fan of natural ventilation. It's self-regulating, if you do it right. It meets demand exactly, not proportion, not approximately, exactly, right? And there's no controls or interfaces or electrical power required if you do it right, right? Now, that's the big if, right? That if is yeah. about a mile wide and 10 miles deep, but... Yeah. You know, the simplicity of that, right? Self-regulation. It's the difference between a roundabout or a turning circle, I think they call it in North America, and a set of traffic lights at a crossroads, right? So a set of traffic lights at crossroads, metal, production of the things, power, maintenance, it's a cost orgy, right? But does it employ people? Oh, yeah, that's that's basically a version of basic, basic income, right? But yeah, especially the uh, auto body shops that do repairs yeah. when the car crashes. <laughs> but if you've got a roundabout or a turning circle, that is a self-regulating device, right? You can sponsor the middle, flower flower arrangement by Honda or whatever, right? But yeah. people come up to that; it self-regulates. When it's quiet, it's quiet. When it's busy, it regulates people onto it. There's no power, no maintenance apart from the grass. So that's passive versus active, right? That's how I see that. Yeah, yeah, I, I should, like that example. Should again, I should be married to Beyonce. Well, you know what's funny, Alan, because we've talked about this before, and yeah, I've been up and down the technology ladder, and I remember like when we were still practicing, and most of our clients were other engineers, and they would come to us, and we would when we started to talk about the control stuff, and they would started going down the path of interconnected interface, you know, yeah. all you know, fuzzy logic, blah blah blah, and I know all of that shit, right? But in my world, and Adam, you know what a thermostatic radiator valve is. And Allison, you would you would know that too, right? But it's spring-driven, and it's got refrigerant in it. It knows how to do a phase change without telling it to do a phase change. And the spring never fails, right? <laughs> so when we went into the technology, and this was back in the days when Johnson had the, uh, the Metasys system, and they introduced it, and we taught, you know, modems and all that kind of crap, and we had nothing but headaches. We became programmers and you know, IT technicians and telephone communication experts, and and none of it was contributing to the benefit of the occupant. 
And I remember the day when I made a big decision that said, that's it, I'm done. No more. I don't want a relationship with my thermostat. I want a relationship with my guitar and fishing rods. And most of my clients, the same thing, right? Except if they had grandkids, they wanted a relationship. But calling up their thermostat to talk to it, hey, well, that's, a, that's another soapbox. But I got to tell you, when we got away from the high technology, went to basic controls, and if we could use something that had springs in it and refrigerant that would go through a phase change, like a thermostatic regulated valve, that's what we did. And even up until 2019, when I shut my practice down, we had really nice, like multi-million dollar homes, big clients, big ticket homes, big ticket toys. We were able to convince them to use a thermostatic radiator valve in the zones that we had. It's technology that goes back to the 40s. It worked in the 40s. It worked in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. And it'll keep working for the next 100 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As BMS controls engineers now getting hammers and driving to your house. Right now. God, I'm going to get that guy. On the other hand, we do have um, a modulating equipment that has computer boards in it and all that stuff. And, and, and I like that level of complexity. I think Albert Einstein said it best when he said, um, everything should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. I'm a big fan of IAQ and IEQ, and that's what I want to talk about next. But it's the measurement, right? To sum up what Robert's saying, I'm a fan of dumb solutions, but knowing what's going on, right? Are my dumb solutions working? That's really what I want to know, right? So let's talk about Robert's uh, design ethos, right? Design for buildings, design for people, right? So for me, that whenever I hear that, I always think IEQ, IAQ you know, designing around those metrics. Have you got any insight on that from your design work? So in my house, we have two aware element IAQ monitors that monitor temperature, relative humidity, chemicals, uh, VOCs, um, which could be anything. It spikes when I open a bottle of scotch. (laughs) (laughs) And PM 2.5 and carbon dioxide. I mostly watch the carbon dioxide. That's what I have on the display on those two monitors. But you know, every once in a while, I'll look at the PM two point five, and our you know our house is pretty good on PM two point five, even though right. it's an old house. I also, whenever I go somewhere, I take this guy with me. Yeah, I have one of them, and I do exactly the same. I'm glad <laughs> and, to see that's a healthy only... six seven five. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to watch the um, the number go up and down with number of people, and also the outdoor temperature. Yeah, on the, on the really cold days, it's it's it'll be in the four hundreds. Yeah. Um, because we get more stack effect. We're about eight and a half ACH 50 here in my house, which right. probably was 15 ACH 50 before uh, anything happened a decade ago when this attic got spray foamed. But it's uh, eight and a half now, and I'm, I'm trying to get it down to five when I do the basement. So anyway, um, IEQ, monitoring. In our residential HVAC design work, we... On every job that we can, we we will spec MERV 13 filtration. And um, sometimes people ask about monitoring. We don't usually say anything about monitoring in, in our reports, but maybe we should add that. 
So yeah, I mean, we do MERV 13, which is the, the best compromise between the uh, level of filtration yeah. and the, the pressure drop. I agree. Yeah. Cost. Yeah. People understand temperature because they've been living with that in their houses for years, right? And a lot of people understand humidity. I'd like to get sort of like CO2 as another metric in there that was a generalized metric that people understood. Do you, do you have any pushback when you start talking about stuff like that? No, I haven't had pushback. Well, yeah. Usually people are interested and you know, people who haven't heard about it or thought about it are interested. You know, It's interesting though, when I, when I travel, I take this, you know, when I'm sitting out at the airport, I'll put it out in front of me. When I'm on the plane, I put it in the seat right in front of me. And, and almost nobody ever asks about it. It's like, whoa, what's he measuring? <laughs> I guess they're just suspicious of me when they see it and they're afraid to ask. I don't know. <laughs> I always use it. So I stay in a lot of five-star hotels. Yeah, my life's awful, I know. I always take that with me and looking at like the RH and the CO2 and these things is really telling because my yep. theory on hotels is they are like at the bottom of the pile, right, in terms of quality of construction. No one cares. Literally no one cares. Yep. And you can see where like the corners have been cut on late and cooling or things aren't working properly. You know, it's just a disaster. So my experience with CO2 monitoring, I, I did what you did. I pulled the trigger and I bought a few of those monitors. And I bought it home, and I was horrified at how bad the CO2 levels were in our house. Yeah. I mean, it was illuminating, to say the least. It doesn't take much to get the yeah. CO2 up. I mean, you take two or three people in a relatively small room, yeah. it can easily double in minutes. Yes. Yep. And if you're not monitoring or being aware of it, I mean, you'll at some point, the levels get high enough that it starts to feel stuffy, and you just, like the air, you can yeah. sense the quality is not good. But you can prevent a lot of that from ever getting that high by just being aware. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last week in Florida, I was um, staying uh, after the conference. I was staying with somebody down there, and we were in the bedroom. My wife and I were in, in the the guest room, and with the door closed, and it went up to close to three thousand parts per million. Night. I said, "Oh man, <laughs> need to get some ventilation in this house." Yeah, that's not good. See, that, yeah, that, that is not good. The other one, I, I use it on, like, I'm in the plane and you you run it. So like, I do a lot of long haul flights and over that flight, man, that thing, the, the RH goes down. And oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you're thinking, mm, am I, is this healthy? It's not, is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that goes back, like if you go back again to the 70s, like we started out talking about, you know, the house needs to breathe and I was around, fortunately, early enough that when Canada's R2000 program, which Joe Sieberg was involved in, you know, and we had buildings that, you know, we were trying to meet the R2000 requirements, which was 1.6 ACH50, yeah, 1.6. And uh, we had buildings that were difficult, no moisture problems, air quality problems, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we were introducing air-to-air heat exchangers. So we know that, so you're, you know, when Alice, when you're talking about, you know, 3,000 parts per million and the house needs to ventilate, house, we need some ventilation in this home. Where that comes from is the ventilation system. And so, you know, having in Canada that standard practice to have a heat recovery ventilator, an energy recovery ventilator. But in the U.S., it seems like those terms are new. Yeah. Like, what, what is that all about? I mean, the first patents were filed in 1979. We've been using them since that time. But why in America? Does everybody treat these devices as if they're brand new? Because we have a lot of builders who want to do, you know, code minimum and, and keep the code from advancing too much. Uh, here, here's an example. In Georgia, 
three or four years ago, we went through the process of updating our code. We went from the 2009 to the 2015 International Energy Conservation Code. And the IECC, the 2015 IECC, requires our climate zone here, three ACH50 for air tightness. And if you're below five ACH50 on air tightness, you have to put in mechanical ventilation. So if we had gone with, with what the code says, every new house would have to have mechanical ventilation in Georgia. But here's what, what the builders did. You know, it's not all the builders, but you know, there are enough of them that, that wanted it that they got it. The air tightness requirement in Georgia is not three ACH50, but five ACH50. And you know where I'm going with this, I think. The mechanical ventilation requirement is now at three ACH50, not five. So they, they built themselves a sweet spot. They got to hit between three and five. So they, they meet the code for air tightness and don't have to put in mechanical ventilation. And if I were a builder building a even a 4.9 ACH50 house, I'd be nervous about selling that to somebody without a ventilation system. So where was the HVAC lobby guy there? He should be lobbying like crap for getting mechanical ventilation in every building, right? Yeah. Builders, are, there's, they're the, one of the most powerful lobby groups going anywhere. I mean, they just carry a huge, huge stick. And, and again, Allison, this is going back, and you'll probably remember this. There was a proposal to improve insulation levels. And the lobby groups for the builders managed to get that shut down or delayed at least for a few years. And this is a subject that pisses me off because when we started to, again, going back a number of years, promote uh, compliance with, say, ASHRAE Standard 55. And our clients would then go to talk to their architects and the builders about being in compliance with ASHRAE 55. And, and A, they didn't hear about it. They didn't know anything about it. So so our client had to explain it to them that this was uh, something that they were looking for in their project. And the builders would come back and say, well, that's an upgrade. So then I would say, well, hang on a second. <laughs> if it's an upgrade to the standard, then anything below the standard is a downgrade. <laughs> And I would say to my clients, how many of you actually want the downgrade? Put up your hand if you want to pay for the downgrade. And that's what people do. They pay for the downgrade whenever it's below the standard. Mm -hmm. Interesting interesting way of looking at that, actually. Alison, are you optimistic about the future of house building, or do you see it just being a very gradual improvement? It seems like it's just going to continue being a gradual improvement. And I think where things need to go now is the electrification movement. I think we need to decarbonize electricity to the maximum extent possible uh, and and then electrify all our buildings as much as possible so that you know we can solve this climate crisis that we're in. Do you think the capacity is there for that? In electricity capacity, I mean? I hope so, you know. Hope is not a strategy. I know, I know. Hope is not a strategy, but you know, I, I just keep working on what I'm doing and, and letting people yeah. know what's going on. And I've got electrified my house. It was we had a gas furnace and a gas water heater, and now we're all electric. We had the gas meter removed. I think this is the way to go. And you know, everybody always says, "Well, you're in Georgia, and your electricity is not very decarbonized." There, you look at Georgia Power, and, and but number one. Electricity is getting cleaner every year. EIA, uh, the yeah. Energy Information Administration data show that. And the Rocky Mountain Institute did a study a few years ago, 2020, I think. And they found that in the lower 48 states of the U.S., 
all but Wyoming at the time would benefit, would reduce carbon emissions by electrifying, by going with heat pump over gas heating. So, so should I be buying shares in heat pump firms and electricity generators? Probably, right? Well, you'd think. I've invested in solar companies twice and both of them went out of business. So <laughs> <laughs> Too early. The right idea too early, right? That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. You made an important statement there, and that was decarbonization of electrical production. A lot of people, when they hear the word decarbonization, they think it's actually at the house, but it's yeah. at the source. And that's really important. And just talking about sort of north here in Canada, you know, Adam, as you know, I mean, the oil and gas industry carries a big stick. Mm. If you look at power production in Canada, really the two provinces that are the ones that are the worst offenders, it's Alberta, where I'm from, and Saskatchewan. That's basically our most of our power is generated by either coal, oil, or gas. But BC is hydro, Manitoba's hydro, Quebec is or Ontario's nuclear and hydro. Quebec is all hydro. Yeah. And out in the Maritimes, it's a mixture of hydro, nuclear, and some oil. But our our country is actually, I think almost 70% of our production is through renewable systems, if you include nuclear as a renewable system. That's happening, right? That's that's the rebirth, the rebranding of nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. We all need to be France, says the Englishman. Remember, we fought a hundred-year war with France, so <laughs> you know. I'm a big fan of France for two reasons. One, French know who they are and they make no, they make no apologies for it. <laughs> they just know they're awesome and that's it. If I wasn't a Brit, I'd be a Frenchman all day, every day. Two, England's 73% of their power is nuclear. So this is an accident of the Second World War policies of General de Gaulle. However, they are a genuine low-carbon economy. Probably in the Western world, the lowest-carbon economy. No one talks about that. No one celebrates that. Mm. Why is that? I don't care. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Nuclear has a, a checkered record in, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, overall, the production has been great and uh, you know, lots of low-carbon electricity over the decades. But a few highly publicized accidents, Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima. Yeah, the dread um, factor's high. But I think the technology is changing. And why are we not taking that waste and getting Elon Musk to send it up to ET's back garden? can shoot it into space. Why is that not happening? Right? In the 1600s, we all thought the sea was infinite when you put all our rubbish in that, right? We now don't know that's not. I'm yeah. pretty sure there's a bit more room upstairs in E.T.'s backyard. Yeah. Why is that not happening? I don't get it. Why does Greta not go, how dare you, but I love Macron? Why is that not happening? I don't get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we need solutions. Yeah. <laughs> I think one reason that doesn't happen is that you know the uh, the possibility of a rocket exploding and showering that stuff all over the earth. Yeah, but that's why you shoot it out of uh, New Zealand, which is where most rockets take off for several reasons, right? Really? Uh -huh. Yes. So New Zealand is a, a spaceport. There's certain places in the earth where it's really better to take off and land from, or take off mostly, right? So a lot of satellites are fired off from New Zealand. I'm a nerd, right? I read a lot. I'm on planes a lot and I read a lot of stuff, right? Most of it about Kim Kardashian. But now and again, I read something technical, right? <laughs> and um, so New Zealand has a future as a space. As things move to space, like business, war, everything moves space. New Zealand has a very bright future with that. And one of the reasons is it's very remote. So if things really do go belly up, 
but the Earth is an oblate spheroid, and they're closer to the poles, so they are they're farther from space. You'd think somebody at the you know places <laughs> at the equator would be better. They're closer. Put a bomb in a match, right? Gus, this is talking. But yeah, there is there's a uh, buildings are cultural phenomenon, right? Mm. My example of that is North America is forced air heating and cooling. Where I come from in the UK, only poor people have that. Right? That's a sign of social housing. It used to be in the 70s and 80s in the UK. So like when I moved to Canada, I said to my real estate agent, I want a brick-built house and I want radiant heating. Well, she laughed so hard at that. It was not funny. I didn't get any of that, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, there's a cultural aspect to it, right? Culture changes slowly. And it's the same, I think, with power generation, right? There is a cultural unacceptance from people our age, mostly, of nuclear because through Mile Island, things like that, right? But yeah, at some point, that's got to change. Someone's got to take the lead on changing this. Well, I mean, the other issue, I live in Georgia, and and we are the uh, state, Georgia Power, my utility, my electric utility, is building the first nuclear plants in the U.S. since the last ones got canceled in the 80s. And they're years late and billions of dollars more expensive than they projected. And we're paying for it. And, you know, as a rate payer of Georgia Power, I'm paying for that. So uh, they still have that problem too. This is where the world bifurcates, right? So in the Middle East and yeah. in China in particular, they are building them like wheat, mm-hmm. like by the hundreds, not the tens. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Wow. Now, they're using the new is it theorem. I can't remember. Something beginning with T that I can't pronounce. Technology, but the point is, they're going to be low carbon economies with pretty much solid power supplies, and we're not. Yeah, because we can't build them because of like regulations and corruption and all sorts of reasons and yeah. money. You know, they they have the ability to power through a lot of that. So you know, there is going to be a fork in the road. There has been a fork in the road, and I think it's going to become in a generation or two something so substantial it's going to separate winners from losers. And yeah. It won't be our problem, it'll be our kids' problem, right? <laughs> it yeah. could be a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the bottom line is, I mean, we have to stop burning stuff. Yes. And that, that's, that's the root of our problem. And, yeah. you know, Robert has talked about this for a long time. We need, you know, we need to use low temperature heat for a lot of the stuff that we're using high temperature heat for now. Yeah. And it's, it's good not only to help with the climate crisis, but also, you know, it's better for comfort. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that it also enables the efficiency out of the machines that we specify. Yeah. Right? And so the people that are listening to this, you know, there's a direct correlation between the efficiency that you paid for and the operating conditions of the system, which you probably had very little to do with. Correct. And so we would teach our clients again that, you know, we'll specify the efficiency of the equipment based on this, the operating conditions that were, were necessary. And then we're going to hold the architect responsible for making it happen. <laughs> and that never went over well with the architect. No, but no. That's the way it should be. We know what it takes to get low temperatures back in heating and high temperatures back in cooling. We know the enclosure that's required. We know everything about the heat exchange because that's what it is. It's an engineering problem. And then we can specify what's necessary and then hold architects responsible for it because that's what they're for. (laughs) (laughs) Not the other way around. We've had such a cluster, you know what, when the design community puts such a high emphasis on art. And I, again, like I get the art part of it, but for far too long, engineers have had to compensate 
for bad architecture. We've forgotten about vernacular architecture. We've forgotten about the passive solutions. We've, we've made tons of mistakes. And as a result, it's an energy hog. People need to understand that for every energy that's converted in whatever form, if it ultimately goes because people are avoiding discomfort. Yeah. You know, and that's why, you know, if we're going to be specifying high efficiency equipment that we need to enable it and we know everything that's required and that the architectural community has to get on board with this. Peter Simmons says, you know, congratulations, you're an engineer. You didn't know this, but your job is to clean up architects' mess. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to slam all the architects because there are some really good architects and there's a lot of awareness going on. But my God, when I... We still see it today, 2023, the buildings that are coming out for development. And it's like, have you not got the memo? Like, do you not understand what this is all about? Yeah. You know, they still flaunt bad decisions. Yeah. And everybody can see it. You can't hide a 30-story building that's an energy pig. Yeah. It's like you can put a bag, a brown bag over its head. <laughs> like, we can see it. <laughs> Right. This is why books like yours, Arsene, are really important because engineers need to be more prolific in the output they produce and getting on the front pages, right? Yeah. It's always the architect who's on the front page having the grip and grin with the mayor. Why is it never the engineer? Right. This is why it's on all of us, particularly us of a certain age, to like put stuff out put thought opinions out, put books out, and really try and get on that front page with the architect, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Okay. So that's, that's where I am with it. That's another reason we like to do these podcasts and like, that bring people like yourself, you know, give you platforms so we can like, put things out there because it's got to be done. It's got to be said, right? What you're writing about is important. And it's sort of, because it's sort of like engineering and you've got to be clever. You don't. you just got to pay attention, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, like, it's not complicated. Yeah, I mean, no, nope. yeah. the the basic ideas are are pretty simple. I mean, yeah. even the the laws of thermodynamics. You know, yeah. heat flows from hot to cold, and yeah. moisture goes wet to dry. Air goes from high pressure to low pressure. Is it most of it is first year high school physics? If you can get that down, you're good, right? Yeah, to understand just about everything you need to understand. But not I even all of high school physics. I mean, just, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So we're coming to the end. Have you got any, um, what's your next book, is I suppose is the first question. I don't know. Right? I'm working on some online training to supplement this book so that yeah. you know, people can go in there and, and you know, get the different ways of learning it and, and also go deeper in some areas. So working on that now. And then, um, I don't know, I could, I could go take this book and, and make a simpler, less expensive version. Because you know, sixty nine dollars US, a lot of a lot of homeowners are not going to buy this. They, you know, they'll see it on the shelf. Oh, sixty nine dollars. But if it were nineteen dollars, then I, you know, I think yeah. or a Kindle. Yeah, yeah. You thought about um, putting it out in Kindle and making it a bit more affordable? Yeah. Well, I am going to do an electronic copy, and I haven't figured out all the details of that yet. But that's that's coming this year. I can help you with that. If, if contact me offline if you're interested in that, I can okay. hook you up with someone who can do that really quick and cheaply. Yeah. Well, I've got a publisher and, and I, yeah. I can talk with her about it too. But yeah, I'll talk with you too. Okay, cool. So um, we normally finish off with just a quick fire question each. I'll go first because I'm talking. I've stolen this from another podcast, but I don't care. I am a stealer. What are we not talking about that we should be talking about right now in the built environment? Hot water. 
Go when ahead. I wrote the book, you know, there's this guy named Gary Klein in California and, and yeah. Larry Weingarten and, and some others I call the hot water gurus out there. And they have been pushing really hard on the fact that hot water systems in buildings are terribly designed and, and the distribution systems are out of date with the kind of fixtures that we use now. Correct. So I finally really dug into that deeply because I have a whole chapter on it in the book. And I've also retrofitted my house using some of those ideas. And I mean, it, it's huge. I mean, when I moved into this house, it took three minutes or two and a half minutes and three gallons of wasted water to get hot water at my kitchen sink. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And, and now, you know, I did a retrofit and I've, I've written about that in the blog as well. And I get hot water there. It's, it's warm by 20 seconds, 15 or 20 seconds, and it's hot by 30 seconds. And it's a huge difference. And, and in my bathroom, the shower and the lavatory, I mean, it's even a bigger difference. So, yeah, I would say hot water. It doesn't get enough coverage in the world of building science. 100% agree, because also it's a non-renewable resource in a way, right? It's all less renewable than other stuff. Yeah, water matters. There's not many substitutes for it. Let's put it that way, right? There's no substitutes for it. So using it well is is on us, I say. So I couldn't agree more with that. Robert? Yeah, so Allison, I would, I would be interested to know if you were given the opportunity to teach a high school class on how to buy a home, <laughs> what would you say to those grade 12ers no, that's a, that's a, man, how to buy a home. Number one, get a blower door test. <laughs> find somebody, some, find somebody with a blower door and get a blower door test on the house on it, you know, before you put money on it or, you know, have it tested or, yeah. you know, see if they've got the test. Understand the very basic stuff, the building enclosure, be able to go in the house and take a look at the, at the, you know, state of the air barrier. If you can get in the attic. Take a look and see, you know, what kind of holes you see in the basement or crawl space if they have one and see what kind of holes there are. Take a look at at the windows, you know, get an idea about the building closure. And then the mechanical systems, take a look. Does it, does it have an old inefficient furnace or air conditioner or heat pump? What do the ducts look like that? I've got lots of pictures of things to watch out for. So I would show them those and... So yeah, just educate them on uh, you know what does good look like and what does bad look like and and what kind of testing would you want to see? Yeah, you know for those that are listening, if because we get parents and we got kids that listen to this stuff, just be assured that we have had clients who are gazillionaires build these edifices to their narcissistic <laughs> egos. <laughs> They will spend more time researching the plane that they're going to buy or the yacht that they're going to buy or the plastic surgery that they're going to have done on their bodies than they will invest in time and understanding what they're going to live in. This is a problem that we have in society is that even the most educated amongst us, the wealthiest amongst us still don't do the necessary homework to buy a home properly. Mm -hmm. So if you're in grade 12, and you just heard Allison's words. You're smarter than they're probably some of the top 10 of the smartest, richest people in the world. <laughs> this is actually, that's a really good point, Robert. This is a marketing issue, right? Marketing and advertising have made it fun to investigate the spec of a car, but not a house. Yep. That is fascinating. That's a great insight, actually. And you Don think Draper about- needs to get on this. 
you know, when you think about it, I mean, if you think about the value of a plane or a boat or surgery, yeah. all of those types of things, and then you compare it to the value of a home, and then where you spend your time in indoors and the yeah. consequences of those, like you would spend twice as much time if you knew that looking at, you know, what it takes to design a good home, build it and operate it. Right. You know, Alison, that's a course that you should do. Like one of the summary courses around the book should be, this is what a good home looks like. Mm-hmm. Look for this, 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 and yeah. this, right? Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so trademark edifice complex on that. We look forward to some royalties. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll help you with that. We'll we'll co-author an article on that. That's yeah. that's something that should be done, and it should be done at high school level, not after yeah. the fact. You know. Yeah. Okay, Alison. Look, thank you for right. coming on. Congratulations on the book and its success. We will see promoted, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna as soon as it's over, I'm going online to buy it. Let me say uh, one more thing. I am coming to. Uh, Canada in March. I'm going to be in Guelph doing a one-day workshop at Eden Energy Equipment. Ah, Michael. Yeah, Michael uh, Riddler. Um, Let me some info on that and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll send you the link to the registration page. Um, He set it up for one day, but if there's uh, enough uh, interest, then he was going to set up a second day as well. So full-day workshop. I'm basically going to cover the whole book in one day. Okay, we'll see if we can uh, get some interest on that as well. All right. Awesome. Well, you- Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome. And uh, congrats yeah. on that book. Well done. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless. Increase efficiency and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. The future promised real-time monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with SensorSuite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? SensorSuite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources, allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android, and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to SensorSuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show. Here it is. Allison's book, right? That was a good, I, you know, I like talking to Allison. He's, 
he's a smart guy, but he he's uh, you know he thinks deeply about his responses and he thinks deeply about a lot of things. And uh, but he's put together a great publication, and obviously we're happy to have him on. And I love the fact that, uh, as I said earlier on, that he does talk, he does share his personal life. He's not afraid to share what's going on in his yeah. own. And he's a sharer. There's no choice about it. And um, what I like about it is that a lot of PhDs I've worked with, not many, but a few I have, they find it really hard to communicate to like normal people. I mean, you got to talk to me like I'm a Labrador or a brain tumor for me to get it. So, you know, it's like. I'm just impressed that he's managed, because he's a PhD, let's face it, he's got a big brain, right? But he's managed to distill this information in a way that's readable and doable. And Because, you know, the target audience isn't other PhDs. This is why I always used to say to PhDs that work for me. Yeah. You're not speaking to other PhDs, you're speaking to normal people. You've got to talk yeah. like a normal person. And yeah. I think he pulls that off pretty well. He does a great job of it. Yeah. You know, a PhD in physics is not the same as a PhD in underwater basket weaving. Like it's, <laughs> I do not know what you're saying. <laughs> you know, it's a different subject yeah. matter altogether, but he does. He does a great job. He doesn't get too complicated and yeah. he certainly can. He can describe all kinds of stuff mathematically and talk about the physics and stuff, but he doesn't, he knows his audience and he's, and that's who he talks with and. I guess I did enjoy researching his blog because he's got some really just good, honest, open sharing pieces here. Like, this is my house. It's what it was like in the depths of winter, even though I undersized this thing by, <laughs> by yeah. a factor of. And this was yeah. like in the summer. You, that, it's that like eating your own dog food stuff. It's like the software person using his own software, right? Yeah. I love that. That's There's an integrity in that, right? Where, you know, because at some point you might have to own a mistake when you do that and you just got to own it. You know? Yeah. But so far, I've, I've found him high integrity, and I really enjoyed, you know, seeing how his house has been performing with what he's done because that's the real measure, right? It's like you, you know, you've tightened up your house and it's performing. Oh, it's doing great. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, the question is, why wouldn't more people do that? It, that? That was a really interesting point you made about people will investigate their car and their plane and their nip and tuck and but for some reason they don't feel they're qualified or have an opinion to go I deep know. on the house spec. I know it's so bizarre. It is weird. I'd never thought of it like that, but that is so true. Even the people with loads of money and all the time still yeah. won't do it, right? It's like they've been hypnotized. This isn't for you. It's a bit too complicated. You don't know what you're doing, right? Put their entire faith in the builder. You know, and think that the code and the builder and the architect are going to take care of their needs, but if you're a rich, well-educated person listening to this podcast, that's the worst thing you can do is to put your faith into this organization. That's like that's like putting your faith when you go to spend whatever, you know, a million and a half, two million dollars on a plane and you have not done any homework. <laughs> like you're going to you're going to learn as much as you possibly can or if someone's going to do surgery on you. I'm looking to buy a car, obviously a ridiculous car, because that's who I am. But, you know, I've been researching the what's it's out of this for three months already. <laughs> right. I didn't put that much thought into the house I'm living in, right? <laughs> I'm not supposed to know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's the homework is necessary no matter what you're doing. And the home obviously has major consequences because you're spending more time there, right? Well, at a minimum, you're spending a third of your life in bed in your bedroom, right? Yeah. That's before you eat, 
leisure time, hanging out with your family. So it's got to be 40 to 50% of your time is in your home, right? That's, and if you're working from home, it's a little, another level above that, right? Well, you think about, I mean, some of the clients that we've had, these guys will go and girls go buy a Maserati or a Ferrari yeah. or whatever, and they'll talk to you about at length, you know, yeah. the work that they did to get that car whether it was a brand new one from the factory, like flying over the factory, right? <laughs> tour, right? Going on the test track, right? Driving some of the cars, some of the models, yeah. right? They get to go through all of the specifications, what they're looking for, right? But they don't do that with houses, but yet the houses, you know. Like- most people buy a house based on a 30-minute walk around on a Saturday afternoon on an open house. Yeah, like it's just, it's just crazy. <laughs> that is the pressure of the real estate agents put on you, right? So if so, you've done, you've wandered into this open house, you think, oh, I like this. You go in, you think, oh, I'll make an offer. Then they lock you into this like psychological jujitsu game of, well, you better get an offer in by so-and-so and you, know, yeah. you better up it a bit and, oh, I think I can talk about it. It's just, which so <laughs> is unbelievable bullshit. Real estate, real estate people and used car salespeople are right in the same club. They yeah. were like, Born together. They're twins. Yeah. <laughs> but just the other thought like, I, I was sort of had at the end of that was like, we need more people like Alison, like more engineers putting out books about how to and why to's. And, you know, it's not that complicated, really. You know, the more of that out there, I'm looking forward to the day where you see the engineer and the architect on the front page of these glossy mags shaking yeah. hands with the mayor, right? Yep. So he's the architect. I want the engineer to crash that show. Yeah. That's one of my opening riffs when I talk about life safety systems. I say, you will never see the front page of an engineering magazine where this is the guy that designed the best staircase pressurization system. Everybody's <laughs> shaking hands and so on. Never going to happen, right? <laughs> Yet that thing might save 20 or 40 people's lives one day. That person gets no acknowledgement, right? And it's normally a mid-level person. That's the other joke I say. You will never see the rock star professional engineer design the life safety systems because there's no glory in that, right? They're doing the super complicated, you know, heat recovery system. <laughs> it's glory in the wrong places, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Well, I'm glad we had Allison on. You know, he's got a, the book is a great book. You know, yeah. Push it again. Uh, House Needs to Breathe. As I said, it's well written. It's for everybody, really. And he made the comment about homeowners would pay 70 bucks. My message to the homeowners that are listening to this or those who are going to buy a home, if you're going to spend, pick a number, I don't care, $500,000, a million, two million, even $300,000, 60 bucks, 70 bucks for a book. That's a that's, rounding error. Yeah, it's like, Do you know what that is? That's two lattes. A pan of chocolate and an orange juice after you've been to the open house. Yeah, like buy the book. <laughs> like it's just people's value systems. I, you know, we we didn't get a chance to talk about here, but I, at one time I used to monitor where people spent their discretionary income. Yeah. Adam, people spend more money on their pets, outdoor oh, yeah. furniture, moving, right? Cosmetics. I used to call it the poo and the goo. The real competitors to engineering is is the poo and the goo. It's the it's the veterinarian bills and the cosmetic creams. Yeah. Spend tens of thousands of dollars, you know, for, you know, fur line, you know, stuff yeah. for 
Fifi and Fido. And the cosmetic industry sees people coming from a mile away. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, that is. I don't know about you, but I, I, the people that I love in my life don't need cosmetics. I like them just the way they are. I get it why they use it. But, and then as far as pets go, my God. Well, let me just put it this way. People who are destitute on their last dime renting houses can't make the rent, but they will spend all kinds of money to, to put food in the dog. And if there's a vet bill that needs to come up, as many as thousands of dollars for a vet bill, they will, you know, they'll they'll keep their pet alive. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I mean, I get them. I, I mean, I'm 62 years old. I've had lots of dogs and pets. I get all of that stuff. But people value those things more than their own indoor environment. It's it's insane. It's absolutely it's insanity. It's it's bad priorities. We gotta sort this out. But yeah, yeah, I'm with you. It's it's nuts. But um anyway, mate, that was interesting. <laughs> Whenever we have one on houses, like residential, I do come off a little bit depressed because you wind up in this it's just so crazy that the the yeah. skewed values and decision making and spending is just all over the show, right? Yeah. There's another guy, David Sweet, and uh, he uh, works for Taco, and he built himself the quintessential high-performance home. He has since sold it because he moved. Right. But his journey through that that whole learning experience, and they actually recorded it. You can actually see the the recordings online. They did a, you know, I think it was a month by month progress report about what it went on, and they it was an alpha omega analysis of the project. And right. So, if anybody's listening to this, buy Allison's book. It's a great book. But then also yeah. go on and, and learn about David Sweet's uh, experience because it, it's a great message as well. So if I can find the link to that. I'll put the, the link in the show notes. Okay, man. I shall see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Always a pleasure, man. Cheers. All right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.